Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us. I just spoke with Candace Collison, one of my colleagues here at UBC, about her really fabulous book, How Climate Change Comes to Matter, The Communal Life of Facts. This came out in 2014 with Duke University Press, and it's a really important book, a really engaging book, and a really fabulous Hi, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us. I just spoke with Candace Collison, one of my colleagues here at UBC, about her really fabulous book, How Climate Change Comes to Matter, The Communal Life of Facts. This came out in 2014 with Duke University Press, and it's a really important book, a really engaging book, and a really fascinating book. So the book takes us into five very different kinds of communities, and you'll hear about this in the moments to come, in order to look at the ways that climate change is translated, is dealt with, is engaged with, is mobilized in five very different contexts in terms of epistemology, expertise, what truth looks like, what facts look like, what evidence look like, and what um, the larger context in which this issue and language of climate change needs to be translated um, in, in terms of the vernaculars that are already being used by the people in the communities she's looking at. So it's a really interesting study, not just of engagements with an absolutely, perhaps the absolutely crucial issue of our time, climate change, but also a study in the histories of and social studies of language, vernacular, translation, and meaning-making. So it's really satisfying on both of those levels. It's also a really important study in terms of showing the ways that even very, very different kinds of epistemic cultures coming into contact can still develop collaborative relationships. And so it's a call to think collaboratively and think about what that might look like and mean as we move forward in this really crucial time for all of us. It's a great book. Um, I had a great time talking with Candace about it, and I hope you have a chance not just to read the book because it's really beautifully written, extraordinarily engaging, but also to enjoy the conversation ahead. Uh, Thanks very much, as always, for listening. I'm here today to talk with Candace Collison about her new book, How Climate Change Comes to Matter. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Candace, and thanks very much for making time to talk with me today. I'm really looking forward to it. Thanks, Carla. Thanks for having me on the show. Of course. So let's start out, as is traditional for the channel, by just saying a little bit about how you came to the field. So what brought you to work on STS? Well, I was a working journalist for uh, many years, uh, several, I guess, when you look back. Uh, But uh, I was really interested in how technology was reshaping how we did journalism, how we did shows, how journalists were interacting with audiences. And that's what brought me to MIT originally to first do a master's. And then I discovered this wonderful world of STS and a a new way of asking questions about um, how technology and science were informed by uh, frameworks that involved the social, that involved thinking through uh, broader questions about, you know, how all of this was co-produced. And co-production is actually a theme that we'll talk about, I think, a little bit as we get into the discussion of the book. 
So that book that we're talking about today, in various ways that we'll talk more specifically about in the hour to come, asks in the words of the introduction, how, why, and when climate change comes to matter, and what that looks like in different settings. So what happens here, the book is going to approach debates about climate change by considering climate change as what you call a form of life. And just to set the stage a little bit, it pays special attention to five collectives within and through which climate change comes to matter, becomes meaningful. The first is Arctic Indigenous Representatives associated with the Inuit Circumpolar Council, or ICC. Then we have Corporate Social Responsibility Activists associated with Ceres, a group based in Boston. American Evangelical Christians associated with Creation Care, science journalists, and science and science policy experts. So, how did you come to focus on climate change in particular as the theme that you were exploring here? And how did you come to decide to work on this particular way of exploring climate change as it comes to matter? It really stems from being a graduate student at MIT um, in the early 2000s when climate change was a, a huge concern amongst those in the science community, broadly speaking. Um, and it really wasn't talked about more broadly in public conversations. So there was a lot of friction in conversations about that in classes, in discussions that I had with people at MIT. And so out of that grew, um, uh, uh, I guess, a commitment to uh, really uh, bringing a complex conversation about media and about public discourse together with a complex conversation about science and climate change just ended up being this really important issue that brought together those sorts of concerns. Great. So let's get right into it. Um, so one of the really interesting things happening in the book methodologically is that there's a touchstone that we follow all the way through in each one of the chapters. And that's a kind of focus, at least as I've seen it, and I'm just one reader, right? That's what I'm speaking from. But um, in my reading, there's a kind of focus on language and translation and meaning-making. And you introduce at the very beginning the work of Ludwig Wittgenstein as a touchstone for kind of thinking through how meaning is formed and language, etc. So let's maybe start there. Um, can you talk a little bit about, for you, what the importance of Wittgenstein's work is in terms of how you're thinking about the project? Yeah, Wittgenstein is, you know, one of those wonderfully uh, fancy names and also this, you know, key philosopher for a lot of disciplines and uh, anthropology, you know, has brought it into some of the work there. I mean, I really discovered it uh, through working with and reading Mike Fisher and Joe Dumit's work. And uh, then I started, you know, really digging deep into what he was saying as I was doing field work. And I realized one of the things I was continually encountering and talking with all of these very different groups was the the kind of the way in which people were both speaking past each other and really attempting to speak with each other. So these kinds of uh, translations and what I call in the book vernaculars uh, really uh, came to the fore for me as I was, you know, 
hopping from group to group, really, um, you know, because my field work was uh, quite itinerant. You know, I'd be talking with evangelicals in Orlando, Florida, and then I'd move to um, talking with uh, scientists and science journalists um, just, you know, literally down the road in St. Petersburg, Florida. So, you know, I was really uh, moving across these quite different conversations. And so Wittgenstein's work really became important for me in thinking through how it is that words come to have meaning um, and the way in which grammars and um, all of these, you know, things that we think around linguistics apply in a social setting. So was this also true of the project in its form as a dissertation? I mean, was Wittgenstein also important to what you were doing at that stage? And if so or if not, um, did anything, including Wittgenstein or really anything else, that motivated and shaped the dissertation at that stage of the project change um, when this became a book and not a dissertation? I I mean, I, I was really inspired by him early on in thinking through my dissertation, um, mostly because of that line, you know, where he says, when giving grounds comes to an end, like that's when meaning is established. Um, And so I was, you know, quite intrigued by that moment of of meaning and when something, you know, becomes full of meaning. Uh, But I would say, you know, the way it looked in my dissertation is not quite the way it looked in my book. Um, because the book uh, really, you know, forces you to articulate it beyond kind of just the academic context. Um, even though it's an academic book, you're really trying to underscore and, and um, underline how it is that Wittgenstein is meaningful and, and essential for um, understanding your analysis of what's going on. So, um, yes, he was important in the dissertation, but I think in the book, um, how and why he's important is perhaps much more legible. (laughs) Were there any other things that kind of um, changed in terms of how you were thinking about the project from dissertation to book? You know, when I originally started out uh, with the dissertation, I felt like I had two roads of of writing it up. And one would be more of an issue-specific way of, of tackling it. And the other was... Um, just doing it like how the book turned out, where you're just focusing on one group per chapter. And I I chose the one group per chapter, always thinking that I could go back and and make it more of an issue-based kind of uh, set of chapters. Uh, But once you you go down the sort of almost like case study sort of approach – uh, it, you really realize how rich and important that is um, and how challenging it is to maintain a kind of fidelity and commitment to um, articulating what's going on with each of the groups. And so I think um, that process uh, through the dissertation of becoming committed to a kind of group focus and committed to uh, really uh, – focusing on one group per chapter. I think that became that much more pronounced in the book because uh, I realized going through that process how important it was to really um, 
understand where each group is coming from. And when I've talked to people I, I interviewed and who are in the book, that's the one thing that consistently has come back to me is like, wow, you, you really got what I was saying. <laughs> so I feel like that's sort of the ultimate compliment is when somebody says, oh, okay, you got me. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I, I think the the case study method or just being really committed to a group within a chapter uh, was probably the most important thing that came from the dissertation work and that continued through the book. It's also just, again, from the perspective of a reader, really nice that you took that approach because it gives each chapter space to really make us care about the group that you're talking about by introducing, often in very, very beautiful language and very compelling storytelling, the context and the people that you're going to go on to describe in the, in the overall setting of the argument the book is making. So it really generates a sort of care on the part of the reader. Um, that's really a, a beautiful thing, I think, about the structural approach that you took. So let's get right into it. Uh, so each chapter, really, or each of the body chapters, really takes us into one of these case studies. And the first one takes us into Alaska um, in July 2007. Now, this chapter follows the ways that leaders of the Inuit Circumpolar Council translate climate change. So again, translation, right? And we're going to mention that word a lot, I think, in the hour to come. Translate climate change across and within the contexts of traditional knowledge, science, and media. Now, you talk in this chapter about the interesting kind of aspects of distinguishing between, on the one hand, the way elders would talk about the changes in ice conditions that they've seen in their lifetime, so which would be, as one, I think, of your actors in this chapter calls it, a three-month conversation, <laughs> and talking about um, climate change, right, or global warming. So can you talk a little bit about this, maybe as a way to bring us into this chapter? What's the difference, and for you, um, what about this difference animates um, the, some of what, for you, is the most important stuff that's happening in this chapter? <laughs> Yeah, it was interesting. I mean, I I feel like that I, I started with that chapter in the book because it was probably one of the most important experiences for me to go all the way to Alaska and to Arctic Alaska and experience people who kind of rejected climate change as the you know, dominant framework to understand what they were experiencing, even though, you know, within a scientific community, we would have labeled it climate change. Well, what you're experiencing is climate change. Whereas the way it got discussed at the, the level of village was, you know, these are the many things that we're experiencing. And yes, you can call them climate change, but, um, you know, these are our experiences. And so bringing alongside climate change as a scientific term became, you know, a very much a part of what I experienced when I talked to them because uh, the elders were sort of saying, these are all the things that are happening to us. Um, and the Inuit leaders who were out there at the UN level and, um, you know, at the international scientific meetings, they were saying, yes, what we're experiencing is climate change. Um, but here's all of the other concerns that we have that are part of climate change. And I think that that was, uh, um, you know, something that I 
really uh, struggled at first to understand as um, as what I was experiencing when I first talked to people. So that, you know, an initial rejection of climate change as a term to describe what they were experiencing was really a rejection of all of the baggage that came along with the kind of colonialism that many people throughout the Arctic have experienced in the last 100 years. You know, um, when you look at this sort of deep history um, of uh, interventions, even in the last 50 years um, in many parts of the Arctic, you see, uh, especially, you know, in the um, American and Canadian Arctic, and even um, in Greenland, you see um, the ways in which big interventions have happened militarily, economically, socially. Uh, and so climate change then, you know, gets layered on top of that. Um, and, you know, there's a, a contending that happens um, both as Inuit leaders are bringing Inuit concerns to a global stage um, and to a, a domestic stage um, in terms of policymaking, and as uh, people are coming into you know uh, smaller communities and saying, "Hey, I want to, I want to look at climate change in your community," um, and so that, you know there's a, a whole negotiation that goes on um, between communities and um, you know between uh, scientists and policymakers and uh, and leadership as they translate between these quite different worlds um, with you know varying senses of uh, history and to the kind of long tail of colonialism that's um, embedded in any indigenous communities you know relationship with um, governments and with uh, you know uh, broader policy. Mm-hmm. So this issue of translation um, is really important here, among other issues, right? I mean, you you talk, um, for example, about the importance of the Arctic Climate Impact Assessment of 2004. Um, Now, this is an attempt to bring um, what we might call traditional knowledge into conversation with various scientific fields. And you talk about the kind of exploration here of traditional ecological knowledge, TEK, and indigenous knowledge, IK, as categories. And and you discuss this here as a problem of translation, right? Can you talk a little bit about that, the sort of um, how we might um, specifically understand what's going on here as a problem of translation and as a problem of epistemic cultures? Yeah, I mean, I'm not the first, certainly, to work on this. There's a large body of literature that's talked about the challenges of integrating Indigenous knowledge or traditional knowledge or traditional ecological knowledge. It goes by all of these terms and then their short forms, IK or TK. And, you know, it's interesting because um, what I uh, experienced when I was doing fieldwork was uh, people, you know, really trying to make sense of this in real time, both on the social science side and on the indigenous side as well, where uh, there's, you know, a sudden Actually, if you think about it, it's really only in the last 10 or 20 years that we've had this kind of sudden realization that, okay, their indigenous knowledge is 
important and perhaps even vital to our understanding of the sort of longer history and, and oral histories around change um, to climate, to geology, to you know <laughs> this broad set of scientific concerns. And uh, at the same time, um, you know, we've had these pushes for uh, doing something about climate change and really trying to um, make it also understood and heard by wide publics. And so, you know, TK is kind of caught up in, you know, both um, the larger um, concerns of Indigenous communities of um, addressing climate change. It's caught up in the way that um, scientists are trying to uh, make sense of their findings and to integrate um, Indigenous knowledge where possible in order to have kind of more robust um, spatial and temporal um, kinds of understandings of what their uh, their findings are, are presenting them with. So, um, so you know, so you've You've got these, you know, multiple ways in which um, Indigenous knowledge um, acts to um, underscore more uh, political concerns, but also um, scientific concerns. And so um, I found it really interesting um, to, you know, listen and um try to locate where and when Indigenous knowledge got deployed, both rhetorically and, you know, uh, in a more kind of integrated sense into um, scientific findings. And really the Arctic Climate Impact Assessment is the first kind of major report that integrates it. But, you you know, um, you see the ways in which both um, scientists and policymakers are struggling to understand um, how to integrate these, you know, separate knowledge systems um, for, you know, making better decisions going forward. And you see the way that Indigenous communities are, um, you know, both, uh, uh, you know, reliant on um, knowledge from um, long oral histories in order to um, you know, situate themselves as um, people who are, you know, experiencing the direct effects of climate change, but also um, trying to deal with all of the things that colonialism has kind of wrought for their communities over time. Mm-hmm. So the chapter raises questions in, in ways that you've described and in other ways as well questions of knowledge, knowledge making, and expertise as well that will continue to be central throughout the book, and that's certainly true for the next chapter. So as we move from Chapter 1, The Inuit Gift, to Chapter 2, Reporting on Climate Change, we move to a case study that seeks to understand how science journalists, as you put it here, deal with the challenge of articulating risks and scientific findings related to climate change. So the challenge of climate change here um, for journalists that you're looking at in this chapter is a challenge to their professional adjudication of expertise. And you talk about their negotiation of expertise and and really changing 
um, technologies of and metrics for expertise that are happening at the same time that they are having to report on this ongoing event and phenomenon. So let's maybe start by talking about that. Um, for you, what are some of the most interesting issues around expertise that are shaping what's happening for the science journalists in this chapter? Journalists are are facing a couple of different things, right? So um, not only is climate change this complex issue that brings together a lot of different science, right? I mean, um, climate change, we we call it, you know, a science-based issue, but really there's all kinds of different epistemological commitments within different areas of science. So that's one one part of what they're dealing with. And on the other side, there's, you know, a broader uh, questioning of the epistemological commitments of journalists. And by that, I mean how journalists uh, adjudicate the facts, how they come to know what they know, what they decide is important to put into a story, what isn't important, um, and, you know, which kinds of findings they pay attention to. All of that is now much more open to scrutiny. And the stories that do get put out there, um, you know, I teach in a, in a journalism school now, and I basically say to students, if you're going to report on climate change, you know, you're basically stepping into this really robust, rambunctious set of conversations. So be prepared for that. It's kind of like the swirling vortex that you kind of walk into and say, okay, here's my story. And it's part of a a long set of stories on this issue and a long set of concerns. Um, And so, you know, what happened whilst I was doing the research is we went from um, journalists being severely criticized for not reporting enough on climate change um, and not understanding it enough and reporting too much on um, denialists or those who are skeptical of climate change as a a concern that we should address to uh, reporting on it so much that the public, you know, polling was saying, uh, you know, there's a a lot of exaggerated reporting. And so you get these concerns about bias and alarmism um, from uh, many, you know, detractors of uh, journalists and of journalism as a, a tool for reporting on climate change. And and, you know, in the middle of all that as well, you know, journalists are challenged by, you know, the new technologies that allow people to speak back to them, to counter their claims. Um, And, uh, you know, this whole situation is kind of what the chapter tries to deal with through, you know, various kinds of narratives and, and bringing journalists' voices to the fore in discussing both how norms around objectivity are changing um, and being challenged and how um, the public's, uh, broadly speaking, you know, the voice that comes through on various kinds of media platforms are becoming increasingly important. And at the same time, really a commitment to maintaining a fidelity to scientific facts. Mm -hmm. So the issue of objectivity, related issues of trust and fidelity, 
um, for listeners who are particularly interested in these issues, there's a lot of discussion of this in this chapter. It's a really fascinating chapter that really takes us through, as you've mentioned, the um, need to negotiate among these shifting professional norms, shifting technological landscape between um, the responsibilities to, as you mentioned, avoid alarmism, and also kind of uh, the ethics, right? The ethical need to act um, in these circumstances. How does a journalist navigate that, right? Don't make people too alarmed, but um, instigate action where instigation is necessary. So one of the things here um, that you just mentioned and that you talk about in the chapter, um, you mentioned that when you teach journalism students, you tell them to be prepared, right? So how does a journalist do that? Um, What is, for a journalist today, what kind of preparation is necessary to report and report responsibly on climate change? Hmm. Yeah, this is a really interesting uh, problem. And and I think the one crazy thing about this book is that much of the conversations that were going on in the early 2000s and the mid 2000s, they're still relevant now. Like these kinds of concerns about how we report on this issue have remained present um, despite, you know, all of the many changes that have gone on. And I think, uh, you know, how, I think about preparing um, journalists to report on this issue in particular is to both understand uh, the different kinds of uh, knowledge, um, to understand that there are different kinds of knowledge. So science is one uh, vernacular for approaching climate change, that there are different kinds of expertise, both within science and outside of it. Um, You know, the Inuit, uh, you know, direct experience with climate change is another form of expertise. And, um, and so just having those kinds of questions, um, you know, about who's the expert in this story, uh, what kind of expertise do they have? Why do I think it's important to have this voice in a story um, as an expert? Those are the kinds of questions that want students to be asking from the outset. And then the other is just to recognize that, whatever you put out there uh, as a story, it will be closely scrutinized. Uh, There are um, a lot of um, different sets of concerns and commitments and, um, and, you know, Mm -hmm. beliefs about climate change that um, you have to contend with and you have to be prepared to contend with. Um, But I also encourage students to recognize um, you know, debates around facts as, a, you know, being about a broader set of concerns and recognize that climate change really brings you into ethical and moral terrain and that that ethical and moral terrain isn't necessarily, um, uh, you know, all within um a scientific kind of context. Um, And that's part of why I kind of tack back and forth in the book between, you know, Inuit and then science journalists. And then the next chapter is dealing with evangelicals. Um, And, you know, so I try to, you know, through the structure of the book also really underscore that kind of um, the, I think I call it in the book, like the ethical and moral contours it took me a long time to come up with that line, actually. <laughs> yeah. But it really is. like it, it, The contoured 
nature of climate change uh, is uh, is something that um, anyone speaking about it has to uh, contend with to greater and lesser extents. Speaking of shifting ethical and moral contours, this is the beautiful transition, right, to the next chapter. Now, this chapter, Blessing the Facts, takes us into Orlando, Florida, and the Northland Church for the 2008 Creation Care Conference. Okay, so let's start at the beginning. What is creation care? And for you, um, what's most important for us to understand about the nature of creation care to then proceed to understand the work um, that's being done in this chapter to integrate what's happening in this case study um, to the larger argument? Creation care is an interesting term, right? It causes um, those who are not uh, acquainted with um, evangelical concerns to kind of have a a mental double take and go, what? What's that? Um, It's really interesting. While I was doing the research, I was part of other journalist conversations where people were going, hey, have you heard of this new thing, creation care? What is it? And what, what are they really, you know, what's their position on all of this? And when I talked to those who were, um, working and, and working with and leading um, this kind of insurgency that was creation care in the late 2000s, uh, they described it as a way of um, getting away from all of the baggage that came with environmentalism uh, because environmentalism within um, evangelical communities was associated with a whole other set of politics on, you know, sort of the liberal democratic side of things. And so this was um, a way of both um, getting away from that baggage and at the same time connecting it to um, a biblical basis for concern. Um, and so, you know, the uh, like Calvin DeWitt, who um, is a, a professor at University of Wisconsin Madison, you know, he really uh, was one of the original thinkers that tried to uh, articulate the biblical basis for concern about the environment, mm-hmm. um, and you know, began working with. Um, another scientist in the UK who was, you know, the the, uh, chair of working group one for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, right? The IPCC report in 2001, the science report, so not the other, um, you know, reports for policymakers. He was a key leading scientist and he's also a, a Christian, an evangelical Christian. And so, you know, you have this really interesting moment where someone who is fully committed to a, a scientific career and a scientific approach is also concerned about evangelical communities um, understanding their responsibility to act and to um encourage action on climate change. So the chapter raises some really important and fascinating questions surrounding what you just mentioned, right? How does science, how does a scientific issue become a Christian one? In that case, what counts as evidence? And the chapter understands these problems in the larger context of the epistemological concerns, right, that thread through the entire book and likens this case to the case that the book opened with when we were in Alaska with the Inuit Council, right? Now, you talk in this chapter about the challenge of and the nature of working with and naturalizing the vernacular of science 
in this context as a problem of translation. Christian leaders and scientists engaged in these conversations who are Christians must, as you call it, bless the facts in order for them to have any traction in and within the Christian communities that are described here. So let's talk about that a little bit. What, why is this, or what are some of the most um, present issues in developing that traction? What are the major barriers that creation care advocates experience in translating a concern for climate change to their audience? Yeah, that term, blessing the facts, uh, belongs to Jim Ball, who was um, an instrumental figure in creation care, but also has been working with the Evangelical Climate Initiative and um, the Evangelical Environment uh, Network as well. And uh, it was interesting. I, I had this really important, again, like another very important conversation with him over the phone in which he said, yeah, no, what we need is uh, people to bless the facts because a lot of our community members, um, broadly speaking, right, there's uh, estimated 30 million evangelicals in the U.S., but a lot of people are listening to talk radio, they're listening to other kinds of voices that are saying, yeah, climate change is, you know, uh, made up or misconstrued or exaggerated, and uh, what we really uh, need is someone to step in and say, you know, who has a lot of credibility within the, the Christian community to say, no, actually, these are facts we need to pay attention to. And, you know, in talking more with him and in talking more with um, scientists who had worked with um, creation care leaders, you know, they, they said at some points, I said, okay, but there are some, you know, major differences here um, in, in the way that you might approach things like how the world began. And uh, one of the scientists said, yeah, you know, I had that conversation with one of the evangelical leaders I was working with. And he said, you know, we may not agree on how the world began, but we need to do something about where it is now. And so this is really the terrain that we want to um, establish as, uh, you know, a, a a point of concern for our um, evangelical communities because uh, we care about the poor, because we, you know, have been told by our uh, uh, biblical traditions, by um, our leaders, that that is, you know, a Christian responsibility to care about the poor, to care about um, the kinds of things that are happening in our world where people suffer. And so, uh, let's, you know, begin to connect um, these issues of environment to our larger and broader concerns. Um, and, and so those kinds of conversations were uh, really, you know, transformative uh, for me in terms of, again, thinking about this issue of translation and of vernaculars and of how um, issues come to be full of meaning and come to be moral such that there is a rationale to act, right? There has to be um, some, you know, broader thinking around what an issue means for a community with strong uh, moral beliefs. Right. And so one of the things, um, just to kind of mention a couple of 
things that are happening in this chapter that might be particularly interesting to listeners who want to kind of come and read more and learn more, um, you talk about a lot of these phenomena in terms of co-production. So I just wanted to flag that because we mentioned that um, at the very beginning, but also sort of um, the chapter has a lot of detail in terms of how elements are aggregated and disaggregated in order to accomplish the goals of this creation care movement. So in terms of aggregation, you talk about the um, kind of strategy of using the vernacular of restoring Eden right, as a way to generate this kind of care. And in terms of disaggregation, there's simultaneously a challenge here Um, at least that I saw as a reader, of disaggregating um, the kind of baggage of treating the environment and care for the environment as a, quote, liberal democratic matter, right, that some of the people they want to get on board um, would kind of shy away from. There's also the challenge of understanding that a belief in evolution and a belief in climate change um, don't have to go hand in hand. So there's simultaneous ways of bringing together and disaggregating that motivate, I think, the, the mobilization of this kind of vernacular in this context that's of particular interest to readers, perhaps, and listeners who are especially interested in the mechanics of this kind of vernacularization and translation um, and, and the way that plays out in these different case studies. So there's a, there are two more case studies. So as we move from here, we move to the um, penultimate one. This is the Chapter 4 case of scientists who are what you call near advocates in high-profile debates and also in media coverage of and about climate change. So scientists as near advocates, what does um, sort of what does this stance of near advocacy mean for you? And who for you are one or two of the most um, kind of interesting cases of scientists or science policy experts who have become near advocates in this context? Yeah, I mean, advocacy is like a third rail, I think, for scientists, right? It's uh, it's that um, the challenge of, uh, you know, caring about your research, about your findings, um, but not being seen as someone who has uh, crossed over to fighting for it. Um, you know, there's been a, a couple of uh, high-profile cases where um, that has really been um, the case where somebody like James Hansen has, you know, been this uh, really um, strong voice for um, change uh, of policy related to climate change, and also, you know, joined in in some activism more recently um, around coal mining. So there, you know, this this spectrum of um, Experts who are scientists and who want to intervene in the policy world is kind of how I came up with this idea of near advocacy. Because when I was interviewing scientists, there was this moment of saying, okay, it's all right to um, speak for your findings, but it's not okay to say what should be done about them. Whereas, you know, I talked to another scientist and he would say, um, yes, uh, these are our findings and we are the ones who are most capable of speaking for them and of suggesting action related to them, mm-hmm. right? So <laughs> there's that spectrum of um, near, I call it near advocacy because 
you know, many were advocate or were adamant that they were not advocates for or against something that they must maintain a commitment to um, speaking as experts and be available to all sides of um, the decision makers and the policy makers. Um, so, you know, uh, Carrie Emanuel was a really um, interesting standout for me in terms of thinking through this because um, he was one of the people who said, you know, it's not okay for um, scientists to cross over to be activists. We need to be available to all sides of an issue. But at the same time, you know, he's a hurricane researcher who, um, you know, you know, took the time to write for the Boston Review um, a, a large, a long essay that was later turned into a book that explained what climate change is, what the scientific basis for concern was, and to suggest that action must be taken. Right. So, uh, this is a person who also, you know, participated in a statement put out by. Uh, a broad range of hurricane researchers that said we have to do something about coastal development. I mean, it's crazy that we are continuing to develop our coastlines the way we are when um, they are vulnerable to um, storms and to uh, major hurricanes. So we need to think much more closely about that set of policies um, and think about what it's costing our insurance industry. So this was a you know person who was quite active and at the same time spoke from this very you know high level. Of expertise, he's an MIT professor um, and someone who's uh, well published um, and well respected within the hurricane research community. And even whilst I was writing up the book, you know, some of the findings um, that um, he, you know, became really well known for after Hurricane Katrina um, changed slightly. And you know, so he also demonstrates the way that science can be, you know, a process of understanding such that, you know, it's three steps forward, two steps back, and, you know, this kind of um, nonlinear experimental process of understanding how the world works. Now, speaking of hurricanes, right, this is actually um, a really important touchstone for many chapters in the book, but it really nicely takes us into the next one. You mentioned a quote by an environmentalist at a 2007 conference, Katrina blew the door down and Al Gore walked through it, right? So this sort of wonderful encapsulation of the ways that for a lot of the actors that you're talking about here, major events, including hurricanes like Katrina, including the Exxon Valdez running aground in the Prince William Sound in 1989. These are real turning points that initiate uh, a kind of language that calls to action and a language also that's very concerned for some of these groups with insurance, as you just described, and also with risk. And this question of risk, right, and the the language of risk and the integration of concerns with risk is very much at the heart of the next chapter. This is a chapter, chapter five, that takes us into the context of economy and finance. And in this chapter, we walk with you to explore series, which is a C-E-R-E-S for (laughs) listeners, this audio medium, right, in my uh, New Jersey pronunciation, I don't always make a series, um, a corporate social responsibility group that's based in Boston. So I'm just going to maybe approach this by hitting the ball back to you. For you, 
What's most, first of all, what is Ceres um, for listeners who are not familiar with the social responsibility group? And what's most interesting and important for you about the way they're navigating and translating these issues of climate change? Yeah, Ceres is a fascinating group. Um, they've really done the work to move climate change to climate risk as a concern for investors on Wall Street um, and, uh, you know, for corporate leaders as well. Um, and they really started it back in the early 2000s. Um, they came out of the Exxon uh, Valdez spill in Alaska. Um, the principles um, that they, you know, that founded Ceres were the principles from um, that spill. And I really didn't know any of that when I first started. I just, I had heard them at uh, an MIT event that had um, scientists and uh and this representative from Ceres, Mindy Luber, who is the head of Ceres. And I was fascinated because it was like two different conversations that were completely related. Um, so she was talking about accountability and management in a financial setting and, um, and how we might apply uh, many of the climate change findings. And so, I, you know, when I... I began talking with them, then I discovered this kind of deeper history of their organization, but also that they really saw themselves as a coalition of investors and uh, those who were concerned about the environment and that they were part of a more broader kind of socially responsible investing um, a set of uh, uh, concerns or like a community of, of, they call it SRIs for short. Um, and so that, this was a whole new world for me. So I go to their first conference and it was incredible, right? They had all these uh, people representing major corporations and some smaller companies as well. And they're really talking about what sustainability means, what it looks like in very practical terms. Um, and, uh, you know, this line that you started with that uh, Hurricane Katrina blew the door down and Al Gore walked into it. That was from um, a, somebody at, on one of the panels who just, you know, was amazed at this this moment in 2007. I actually called it the summer of love <laughs> in the book because it was so interesting the ways in which all of the concerns kind of came together and you saw much more public attention, you saw corporate attentions, you saw, um, you know, uh, scientists also um, having their findings paid attention to in a robust way, right? That was the year that um, an IPCC report came out. Um, and so, uh, you know, the work that Ceres does um, is to um, situate climate change within a business vernacular. And that linguistic tra uh, transition, that translation of climate change was one of the most important um, kinds of work that Ceres was doing and that they saw themselves as doing, which um, was interesting, right? I mean, that, that, um, that transition took so much effort and at the same time was such a powerful kind of change instrument um, within um, 
a broad community that normally might not have uh, interacted with uh, climate change as a, you know, as a science issue. Mm-hmm. Now, when you talk about this in the chapter, you talk about some of the major challenges that series and related um, advocates of um, this approach to climate change and climate risk had in integrating a sensitivity to these issues and in translating these issues into bases for action in this financial and economic community. And one of the things that you talk about as being one of these challenges is the kind of short-termism, as it's called in the chapter, of Wall Street valuation. So can you talk about maybe that issue a little bit? Because this is, um, to put it another way, here we have a problem of translation, not just in terms of language, not just in terms of terminology, but here in terms of temporal scale. Right? You've got this bringing into conversation of very long-term concerns with very short-term concerns. And so you have a, a translation across experiences and notions of time. So how is that? If, if um, in your opinion, it's at all um, important to what's happening here, what's going on there in this, in this case study? Yeah, I mean, that's, a, um, I think, an ongoing site of friction, let's say, because um, anyone who is involved in the socially responsible investing world, they, they are the ones who continually brought that up to me um, as uh, the biggest challenge in terms of, you know, all of the, you know, concerns that might be wrapped up in what's um, been kind of colloquially referred to as the triple bottom line, right? So human rights issues, labor issues, um, as well as environment issues. And, uh, you know, climate change is um, a really interesting issue to apply to that because if you think about it as an issue, it's really, um, I think uh, John Holdren was the one who suggested changing it to uh, climate disruption because it's really about this kind of disruptive un- unpredictability that over time shows a trend line of change. And so preparing for climate change as a risk factor then presents uh, real problems because if you're just looking at quarterly returns, um, you're, you might get some of the immediate disruption, but you might not be able to account for the, the longer trend line. And so I think that's, you know, still a, um, a conversation that uh, groups like Ceres are having, um, you know, and not just on climate change, but around issues like water, uh, where, uh, you know, <laughs> we know there's real problems out there in the future, but how might that translate into action now and into preparedness? And one of the, um, the kind of mantras that I heard from um, one of the series founders, uh, Bob Massey, was, you know, what gets... Um, Uh, measured gets managed and so really it's a a challenge of taking into consideration all of the resources available now all the possible scenarios and you know importantly and I, I don't say this um 
any, you know, in any kind of loud way in the book, but climate change, yes, presents negative risks, but it also presents opportunities, right? And so <laughs> thinking through what climate change means within a, a market-based approach um, comes with um, a lot of challenges, particularly when you put it in a risk framework, because um, risk, as Ulrich Beck, you know, taught us all, um, it produces winners and losers. It produces restructuring. It um, it challenges um, knowledge and um, the way that we measure and account for knowledge. Um, so. Mm-hmm. That's uh, a long-winded answer, but <laughs> so as we come kind of to the conclusion of our conversation, we sort of come full circle, right? So we've just spent the book reading about and this um, hour talking about the ways that various groups, journalists, scientists, science advocates, policy experts, religious groups, economic collectives, and others shape and also influence public engagement around the issue of climate change and global warming. Now, there are various ways that you can motivate public engagement, right? You just mentioned water and water issues. Um, A lot of people right now are talking about um, the kind of burst in science fiction that's dealing with these kinds of concerns, right? Paolo Bacigalupi's The Water Knife just got published. There's a lot of attentiveness to the different kinds of media available for dealing with and navigating and narrativizing the issues of risk. Um, and climate change, and water specifically, right, Um, in some cases, um, as a way to start a kind of public conversation. Now, since a lot of this book is about ways to navigate and shape and translate for public engagement, um, perhaps it's appropriate for us to wrap up and come to our conclusion by doing um, uh, some of what the epilogue does and by looking forward from this. So my question to you is, given these extraordinarily rich case studies and sort of everything that we've learned from them, given the media landscape that we have right now, right, for you, what are some of the most exciting spaces, maybe one or two spaces that um, kind of innovative mobilization of these issues for public and for the sake of public engagement is happening. So for you, what are you most excited about when you look at our media landscape right now and see opportunities for translating and navigating this kind of public engagement? That's an interesting question. Um, I mean, I've done um, some research since the book on uh, Twitter as a platform, uh, particularly because um, looking at the Idle No More movement based in Canada, which was an Indigenous movement uh, related to environment issues, um, we really saw the ways in which Twitter could function as a platform for elevating voices that were often not um, included in mainstream journalism and mainstream media reporting. Um, And so, you know, that's the kind of thing that I think is um, really, really interesting, uh, where you have voices that are not being heard and that are, are, you know, articulating um, 
issues in their own vernaculars, right? So what comes out of concern for the environment uh, within the Idle No More movement is also a concern about uh, colonialism and about um, how Canadians think about our shared history um, as a people and as a a nation. Um, So, you know, those kinds of... um, uh, moments on media platforms are really interesting to me. But, uh, you know, the downside, of course, is that um, you also have all of these challenges now around um, public discourse online, where you have sort of new research which is showing that um, there may be real cause for concern where people... um, and, you know, see uh, rambunctious public discourse as um, indicative of debate within the scientific community, let's say. Um, This is this uh, new research around um, the nasty effect, right? If you Google that, you'll find those papers in an op-ed about that. Um, So... I really, I mean, I, I've said this in, in another venue as well, where I think uh, the really interesting frontier for <laughs> developing um, digital tools is around developing better tools for public conversation. You know, we've had all these things like moderation and, uh, you know, you have uh, platforms like Reddit, uh, which, you know, uh, have um, ways of um, both, you know, encouraging um, certain kinds of uh, debates and conversations. Um, and so I think these these broad attempts and experiments with um, having better public conversations via um, digital tools, um, I, I mean, I really think that's, super important, particularly when you look at uh, what the book is is kind of saying about credibility and expertise and how credibility gets established and how journalists are, you know, more open to scrutiny and um, counterclaims than they've ever been before. And similarly, um, scientists, right? You have uh, people like Brian Wynn, um, saying that in in really important ways, um, and Sheila Jasanoff as well uh, for those in the SDS community. Um, you, you know, epistemological commitments are open for um, scrutiny. I often say that we need a bumper sticker that says epistemology matters. <laughs> <laughs> And this is, and this gets to, um, there's a, a running thread in the book that looks at civic epistemology, right? Speaking of the work of, of Jasnov as kind of a way to think through this as well. So we can maybe flag that for listeners also. So Candace, we are now at the conclusion of our conversation. And there's, of course, a ton of stuff that we didn't have a chance to get to, right? It's a very, very rich book. Is there anything in particular, though, that we didn't have a chance to get to, but that you'd like to mention for listeners? Uh, you know, the thing I, I'm always asked about the book is, okay, so so what, right? <laughs> the lovely academic question. Um, so, and I think really where I end the book is in um, 
thinking about what it means to collaborate and what it means to have shared goals without shared assumptions about how evidence comes to matter. Um, and, you know, really thinking about issues like climate change as having um, a communality, right? Um, communal life of facts is the, the subtitle to the book. But uh, a communality means that um, issues like climate change touch on problems from the past, on long interactions with systems and institutions. And, you know, how we talk about issues and facts are, are aligned with meaning making, ethics and morality regardless of how, you know, clean and transcendent, use SDS words, um, the facts might seem. Um, so I think this, this, um, this problem of how to collaborate, um, you know, is one that uh, climate change in particular really brings to the fore. Uh, and now that the book is out, um, what's next for you? What's currently inspiring you? Uh, I'm working on a couple of different projects. Probably the one most related to the book is looking at how journalists in the Arctic are dealing with change, both to their own norms and practices and technologies, but also as a result of global attentions, um, you know, and global activism related to um, climate change, but also related to resource development. So uh, I'm excited to start talking to journalists uh, who are actively trying to get broad publics interested in the Arctic, even more than I did in, in the book. So great. So speaking of change, it sounds like the construction workers upstairs are eager to get started <laughs> whatever they're doing. So maybe this is a good time to wrap up. Candace, thank you so much for making the time. It's an amazing book. It's an important book. It's a fabulous book to read, and I'm really grateful to you for making time to talk with me about it. Thank you. Thanks, Carla. Thanks for your great questions. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society, and you've also been listening to the construction workers working upstairs on behalf of all of us. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you next time.